There may be some victory laps being run at Amazon right now, um, but this has opened up a conversation about its labor practices. Amazon plays hardball, you know, as a rule. That's part of the secret of success. Welcome to Day 2. This is a podcast from GeekWire about Amazon and the future of everything. I'm Mike Lewis, GeekWire reporter. Our collaborator on the show is Jason Boyce. He's a former Amazon seller who runs the e-commerce agency Avenue 7 Media and co-authored the book, The Amazon Jungle. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. And joining us today is uh, someone I've actually been talking with a fair bit in the last couple of days, given the biggest story in the country, at least the biggest story related to Amazon. That is Margaret O'Mara. She's a historian and author a uh, University of Washington professor as well, who specializes in history of tech and politics. Margaret, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks. So big day today for Amazon, regardless of what side of the fence you are on. The Amazon workers themselves you know, voted against forming a union after a pretty aggressive drive that got a lot of attention, even from the White House. Margaret, were you in any way, given you know quite a bit of the history of Silicon Valley, how it manages employees, how it manages labor, were you surprised that this wasn't a better showing by the union? Well, I knew it was going to be a real uphill battle from the very beginning. Um, Silicon Valley tech broadly has had a long history of um, beating back union drives since the 1960s and 70s, particularly, you know, for, for a company like Amazon, well-resourced uh, company that has sort of consistently, you know, done, done quite a bit to, you know, raise pay, $15 an hour minimum wage and kind of supporting that progressive issue uh, as a policy issue and also providing benefits that other comparable jobs in the blue collar sector in some of these parts of the country do not provide. Yes, it didn't surprise me, but it's significant. It's significant that there was this momentum and it has put this question of the fulfillment center job and the broader blue collar work within tech um, made it visible in a way that it wasn't before. Margaret, when you talk about it making it visible in a way that it wasn't before, I think that's a really interesting point because Amazon essentially is, is if you could cut it sort of a broad swap, two classifications of employees. It is a big white collar uh, contingent and a bigger and growing all the time blue collar contingent that works in the Amazon fulfillment centers or the Amazon warehouses. What sort of visibility do you think that this brought to the issues that the warehouse workers face? Yeah, well, you're right. There's always been, I think of it as the big submerged iceberg of tech labor across, (laughs) you know, that that you have the white collar techies that are visible. And then underneath you have the warehouse workers, the fulfillment center workers, you have the the people, you know, making the hardware. (laughs) In in a, a few decades back, it was in the United States. Now it's mostly in China and East Asia. All of this tech requires blue collar work to some degree. Amazon is perhaps the most visible and talked about company in the country right now. Um, it's one that touches consumers' lives, businesses' lives in so many ways. It's inescapable. And so no surprise, just as in earlier eras when you have um, conversations about labor and labor activism and workers' rights center around big companies of 120 years ago, like U.S. Steel, for example, um, no surprise that Amazon becomes a flashpoint, that particularly the company 
because of the year it's had as well, coming on top of the years of growth that it's already had. Um, it, it is unsurprising that this becomes a focal point and has gotten so much attention. You know, Margaret and Mike, I, I'm just curious to hear what your guys' thoughts are. That vote coming down today, it made me think of three things. So RWDSU, I think it was a lose-win for them. For the Alabama workers, it was definitely a lose-lose. But for Amazon, it was a win, but possibly a lose. And what I mean by that is, while the RW, the union lost in Alabama, they can say, look, it was, a, it was in Alabama. It's a right-to-work state. We knew going in here that we probably didn't have a good shot of winning, but because we actually had a showing and we brought national attention, we can now take this to New Jersey, or we can now take this fight to California, where there's, there are you know, much more friendlier states in terms of, uh, of union. And then, of course, for the Alabama workers, I think it's a lose-lose for them because they just don't have a seat at the table in discussing what works best for them. And then Amazon may have won this battle, but boy, have they taken a hit in terms of how they are viewed from the top down, from the Biden administration all the way down uh, to the average worker. So I, I, Margaret, I just love to get your thoughts on whether you agree with that, whether you disagree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that it is, there are not clear winners and losers here. Um, there may be some, you know, victory laps being run at, at Amazon right now, um, but this has opened up a conversation about its labor practices and um, and it's playing hardball. You know, Amazon plays hardball. Um, you know, as a rule, it plays hardball. And when it's when it's kind of being confronted by whether it's with competitors or with, um, you know, that that's part of the secret of its success. You know, now we have the union itself going to present a challenge, challenge the vote. Um, that's going to keep that in the headlines and the and Amazon's practices, you know, what it did to um, influence the outcome of the vote is going to continue to be a story. It's it's a challenge. I think it's a similar challenge we've seen again in earlier eras of American history with very large companies. I've been thinking a lot about Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company's $5 day in 1914 when he doubles everyone's wages, right? That is in part a tactic to prevent union activism. It also is, it's a $5 day that comes with a lot of strings that most of that salary increase was not in cold, hard cash, but it was in things like housing and other things and also required workers to adhere to certain behavioral standards. The sort of stuff that Ford was asking his workers to do, including being married and have a clean house, is kind of <laughs> makes what's going on now at Amazon pale in comparison. <laughs> Well, what you're saying, I think, is that even the idea of a union, to some degree, can help non-unionized employees. Companies worry about the union effect on wages and benefits. But let's talk a little bit about the a Amazon. I think that Jason really touched on something that I think is going to be a bigger issue. Right after the election, or rather the count, Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, who has been a big proponent of unionization, essentially said that he found the union claims regarding Amazon's sort of bullying tactics, maybe illegal tactics under the National Labor Relations Board standards, that he found those credible. Now, this is a sitting U.S. senator who is essentially firing a shot across the bow of Amazon. And Amazon isn't just looking to win on this union. It's got a whole host of things that it wants to win on right now, including antitrust issues. How do you think that the way Amazon is perceived handling this labor fight is going to affect the rest of Amazon's national and international agenda. Yeah, all these things are connected. 
the other headline, this Amazon headline this week was um, Jeff Bezos' statement supporting Biden's infrastructure plan and indicating right. support for increase in the corporate tax rate, um, trying to negotiate these very choppy political waters um, in that, that Amazon and other tech companies have not really faced to the same degree until recently. And really, again, kind of sounding off on this message of $15 minimum wage, supporting that issue, you know, that's supported by progressive lawmakers to raise raising those standards uh, and trying to trying to stay, um, you know, stay in a place where it can continue to do its do its work and continue to grow and navigate a more adversarial political environment. Uh, this is no longer just a few very progressive lawmakers kind of pushing back. This is something that's becoming more broad based. It's all connected. I just want to add to that. I think this is a bad look for Amazon. I lumped together Amazon sellers, which I believe Amazon owes so much, warehouse workers, and then also delivery drivers. And Amazon is sort of in the front of the line in this societal change that we're we're having, Margaret. We're going from we're in a post-industrial age. You know, it started with globalization. The workers really took a hit there. The unions have been declining since the 1970s. And now we've got AI that's replaced millions of workers. We've got robotics that's poised to replace millions of workers. We've got software. And Amazon's not the only one. There are hundreds of companies out there trying to replace workers every single day. Amazon just happens to be better at it. So my, my question historically is, this has been happening, right? The decline of unions. Is there hope for unions in the future? And what can they do, if anything? I saw this really funny Twitter post the other day where Jeff Bezos was talking to a human and, the, and it had like the little quote that said, in my mind, I'm thinking how to replace you with robotics, right? And that's what's happening. And it's not just Amazon. So is there any hope here for union? Can unions pull back this tide? And is there any hope for workers in the future here? Well, I think these things wax and wane. First of all, there's been a debate over automation on the factory floor for a really long time. Um, in the 1950s, you know, there was great concern that that blue collar workers would be automated out of jobs, and unions actually became important forces in kind of pushing back on that. But also, a lot of the automation and the predictions that were made about the information society, as it was then called in the 60s and early 70s, did did not come to pass. Some of it did, some of it didn't, and we've been worrying about. AI and the robot overlords since the first all digital computer. That's not to dismiss those concerns. I think it's very real and the leaps and bounds that AI has made and the investments that companies like Amazon are making in those technologies is nothing to be sniffed at. In this quest for productivity and for rapid delivery and delivering us consumers, those of us hitting our prime one click again and again, you know, the really sticky wicket is the human worker. Companies like Amazon and others are using technology to try and streamline that. Is there hope for the labor movement? I think there's what's, you know, what we're seeing right now, again, I look back to the early 1930s, where a great economic crisis, a crisis of capitalism served as an accelerant for a lot of things that were going on, including unionization and broad-based acceptance and, um, and legitimization of, of private sector unions in the manufacturing industry. Maybe the same thing, you know, COVID, our year has accelerated a lot of other social changes from working from home to a whole bunch of other things. So there's incredible amount of energy around, um, around 
organized labor, particularly in the tech sector, that is something that we have not seen before to the same degree. And I think it reflects the centrality of companies like Amazon to the global economy and the way that the tech of, you know, even in the heyday of Microsoft in the 90s, tech was not kind of squarely in the middle of the story in the way that it is today. Gosh, well, well put. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to take a quick break on the day two podcast right now. It's uh, from GeekWire. It's about Amazon and the future of everything. We will be back in just a moment. All right, we're back at the day two podcast. Myself, Mike Lewis, GeekWire reporter, Jason Boyce, who's a former Amazon seller who runs an e-commerce agency and is the author of The Amazon Jungle. And we are joined by Margaret O'Mara, historian, author, University of Washington professor who specializes in the history of tech and politics. Margaret, quick question for you then about Amazon and the fulfillment centers. I mean, the fulfillment centers not only obviously allow Amazon to extend its ability to deliver you know, post-it notes in, in three hours, it, it also allows Amazon to really diversify its political influence too, does it not? I mean, when you talk to the, well, in fact, I tried to talk to the mayor in Bessemer who said, you know, I don't really want to get involved into this particular fight right now. It's a very important one here, and I think I'll sit this one out. But you talk to mayors in towns where Amazon locates its fulfillment centers, and they are tasked with both creating a better environment for their citizens and also trying to convince companies to pull in jobs. How do you think that that has changed Amazon's political influence? Oh, it's changed it a lot. <laughs> um, you know, it's jobs for a lot of different congressional districts, and right. they have been they have been jobs that that local and state officials have eagerly sought. You know, landing a fulfillment center has been worth you know tax incentives for tax giving tax breaks to Amazon. It's been celebrated and the local media. And, and and to be clear, like these are coming in, you know, fulfillment centers are coming into places in many cases that this is a, a great job relative to what the alternatives are in that place. And it's a reflection of this broader hollowing out of the American, many parts of the American economy in many places where there simply are not the blue collar jobs with the economic security and the hourly pay, much less the benefits that an Amazon fulfillment center can can attract. I think what's going to be interesting to watch is how the aftermath of this particular union drive does play out in other campaigns by state and local officials to land a fulfillment center or how they relate to Amazon in terms of the fulfillment center that's already there. And it probably will play out differently depending on where you are in the country, right? Like in the state of Washington, right. the labor movement is still very strong politically. Uh, California, other places that where you have kind of uh, elected officials that perhaps want to, you know, keep that those constituencies in mind, might play out differently than in Alabama. Well, absolutely, and in fact, Amazon's opening up a new warehouse in Snohomish County this year, uh, and they were very, very excited. I think very pleased that Amazon cast its glow their direction to bring in again, you know a few thousand jobs 
to to a community that can always that can use them. Mike and, and Margaret, I'm an ex-Marine also, and it, it it reminds me of the defense contractors game plan. You would find these manufacturing facilities in the middle of nowhere, and you ask yourself, why are they here when they can be in all these other places? Well, they've entered another congressional district. Every time Amazon, and I think there are hundreds now, Mike. I think I think the last count there are 800. Now they're not all million square foot, but there are a sizable number, especially since they've doubled the number of facilities since last year to keep up with COVID demand. But every time they launch a new FBA center, I tweet, look, Amazon just entered another congressional district. And, you know, Jeff Bezos has a mansion to court all these folks right outside of Washington, D.C. right now. I don't think this is by accident. And I think that this has tremendous influence. I mean, just look at the amount of money they are spending on lobbyists to make sure that their interests are put in front of those of, say, warehouse workers in Alabama. It's a problem. They don't have a choice, right? They have to do this because that's the, that's this phase that we're in. However, it's problematic. And I think the defense industry is a great analogy. You know, we haven't even gotten into like AWS infrastructure, which isn't jobs, but it is a lot of physical spaces and uh, has its own footprint. This is savvy politics. And there is the, the lure of jobs for your district that, you know, in for a congressperson, for a mayor for a county executive kind of being able to say, yeah, I brought this many thousand jobs. Um, and it, it's just the jobs. It doesn't have to be what the jobs pay or anything. But if you're, you're adding to that, then that's a political win. And Amazon is definitely, that is, it's a major job creator nationally. It's extraordinary how it's grown. I just want to push back too on the standard line from Amazon about these great jobs. Certainly they give healthcare benefits from the time that you start, but those workers need it because they get injured. And I think they've got this false equivalent that they're putting out there, which is to say we're paying $15 an hour and the dollar general is paying six fifty. but the level of, of uh, demand uh, both physically, emotionally, and um, and stress-wise is not really equivalent to another retail job so much as it is equivalent to a heavy-duty manufacturing facility, which pays much more than $15 an hour. And so, you know, every time I hear that or I see that that tagline that goes out on social media or on the television, we pay so great, I just say, yeah, but compared to what? Compared to mm-hmm. a much less physically demanding job at the Dollar General or compared to a more fair equivalent, which is heavy duty machine manufacturing. I mean, that's, that's the toll that these folks get put under when they're in these warehouses. I think that's a really important point. And I think it underscores some, a dynamic that perhaps was at work in the outcome of the Bessemer union unionization drive, which is that these are really hard jobs. These are jobs that perhaps people do not see themselves holding for five years, 10 years, you know, long, a long period. Six months. Um, yes, there's a huge amount of turnover. And so some of the, ex- the exact same things that are, you know, were the reason for the union drive to make these conditions better are actually work against a sense of belonging, a sense of long-term investment in a job at a fulfillment center um, that, you know, people are like, I'm not going to be here long-term and I don't see why I should be paying union dues to try and make this particular workplace better. I'm not as invested in it. We're going to take a quick break in the day two podcast. We'll be right back in just a minute. Welcome back to the Day 2 Podcast. I'm Mike Lewis, GeekWire reporter, joined by Jason Boyce 
former Amazon seller who runs the e-commerce agency Avenue 7 Media. Joining us today is Margaret O'Mara, historian, author, and University of Washington professor who specializes in the history of tech and politics. Margaret, in your book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, you reference sort of this, the way it's the these big companies have kind of remapped the workplace in America. And, and one of the things you mentioned earlier in the podcast was about this sort of dual nature of some of these companies. They've got both blue collar jobs to put out the product and white collar jobs to essentially code uh, to get to put out the product. But Amazon's a little different than, say, Apple in that it actually employs its blue-collar workers. I mean, Apple, for example, famously offloads that uh, mm-hmm. to companies to companies overseas. How does that change Amazon's approach to all of this compared to, say, an Apple, which can keep the realities of making an iPhone well away from our prying mm-hmm. eyes? But with Amazon, it's right there front and center. Well, I think it, it also kind of underscores something that is distinctive about Amazon. Like Amazon is a technology company and that software has enabled it to do all that it does. AWS is its, you know, tail, wag, tail wagging the dog at the moment. Um, it's a very much, very much a technology company, but it also is, you know, it's a retailer. It's a logistics company. It's a, it's a different business. It's, um, it is kind of has different labor needs than any of the other "Quote unquote big tech," you know the the big five. Um, it's it, it it's the submerged out workforce of labor is is different for Amazon than it is for any of these other companies, and there really isn't any other comp. You know, in Germany, Amazon employs union workers because in the country of Germany, they have constitutionalized the right to labor unions, and somehow Amazon has made it work in Germany. The workers have a say. It's literally part of the culture there. Well, what we do know from looking at other countries and looking at American history is that the only way that these rights are truly secured is through government intervention, like it or not. <laughs> Corporations will do things, you know, what used to be called welfare capitalism, right? Kind of add on perks and bonuses, increase pay, do things to more clo- closely bind um, workers to the company and make them happier with their jobs and less willing to both leave and or organize. Um, but also giving the company more control. This we still see this happening at the white collar end of tech with you know nap pods and ping pong tables and you know when we used to go to the office, <laughs> um, those sort of perks, right? It's all part of part of that. Um, and but when we look at you know what was the turning point in the American labor movement, um, it was in the 1930s when the Roosevelt administration comes in, when you have labor activists like Francis Perkins, who's running the Department of Labor and others, and you have a Congress that is, um, you know, Democrats in Congress having overwhelming majorities and and labor rights being initially one thing that that Democrats of all from all regions, North and South, agreed on. You get political momentum. So that's, I think, is what's interesting to watch is in this era of a real, we're seeing a really marked shift in the way that, you know, what Biden is proposing regarding infrastructure, the the broader kind of the broader agenda being advanced by Democrats in Washington, D.C., and also Democratic leaders in this part of the country and others. And, and this is a, you know, this is a sea change of after 40 years of going in a different direction for both Democrats and Republicans. And so this, that's, I think, where the, that's where our eyes need to be. We should, and we shouldn't expect companies to be the ones that are going to take the lead. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, well they're, they, have, they have different interests, you know, they're yeah, private companies, they've got shareholders to, to account for. 
The other news that was made this week was this coalition of small business owners that was coming, you know, coming out against uh, against Amazon, uh, or or kind of speaking for the small small business versus Amazon, setting up a new a new dynamic. And this is again, I think, calling. This reminds me of an earlier era in American history where you have the growth of very large corporations and the rise of, of chain grocery stores, for example, in the in the you know 1920s and 1930s, and small grocers kind of pushing back against that, and lawmakers working to you know rich, contain the the power, the monopoly power of these these big companies. Um, this is all. I think this is underscoring how all of these policy and political conversations that are swirling around the tech industry and particularly around Amazon, they're all connected. And it all has to do with power and who, you know, market power and who, you know, who has a piece of the pie and what the role of government is in regulating those markets. Thanks for that historical background. It's great to have the professor on here, right, Mike? I mean, <laughs> hearing it's, it's such a great perspective. Um, I, I lump all together Amazon sellers the, the delivery service partners, the drivers, the contract delivery drivers, um, that's a whole, probably a whole other podcast. How Amazon gets away with hiring contractors that only wear Amazon Prime and drive an Amazon delivery and only do Amazon deliveries instead of an employee is, is, is pretty amazing. But and, and in the warehouse workers as well is Amazon. And it's not just Amazon. It's, it's big tech. It's, this is the era that we're in. They tend to chew these folks up and spit them out. And because they're in every congressional district, because they, you know, Jeff Bezos is being able to hold court soon with his new mansion uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. and have intense political influence. He's making sure that the laws aren't changed to protect those folks because he has a he has an obligation to his shareholders and to be able to grow his company and do whatever he wants. But I just think that these folks are getting a smaller and smaller slice of the pie. The folks at the top, like Amazon, are getting richer, and it's a societal problem. So I, you know, lump them all together. The rules are stacked against sellers. You can't collectively sue. You can't collectively organize and get Amazon to change. And it's because they have this immense political power that prevents laws that would allow such things. You know, I keep saying it's a problem. I sound like a broken record, but it's a problem. <laughs> well, I'm sure Alexa is listening to you right now. Jason. <laughs> <laughs> That is it for today's Day 2 podcast. You can subscribe, rate, and review Day 2 on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Jason, thank you. Once again, Jason Boyce, who's a former Amazon seller, who now runs an e-commerce agency, Avenue 7 Media, and co-authored the book Amazon Jungle. And special guest, Margaret O'Mara, historian, author, University of Washington professor who specializes in in history of tech and politics. Margaret, thank you so much for joining day two. Hey, it was great. Great talking to you both. Thank you, Margaret. Thanks, guys.